20. And I, I want to entitle this, this uh, sermon, We Rise Up and Stand Firm. We Rise Up and Stand Firm. It's a Psalm of David. And just listen to it. And I hope that this will just wash over your spirit and over whatever space you are occupying right now. And I say this to you, Congregation Lion of Judah, and all those others from wherever you might be, whatever country you might be, whatever other congregation you might belong to, um, this is for you, the Lord's words and the Holy Spirit speaking to you and for you. It says, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord Grant all your requests. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Beautiful words of blessing. It's one of the, as I've read the psalm over and over again this week, I believe that it's a, a, a seriously underestimated word of blessing. It should be there with the ironic uh, blessing as well. It's a declaration of good wish in the Spirit for all of God's people. This is a psalm of blessing, but it is also a psalm of declaration. It, it's blessing, but it's also declaring a, a specific truth of the, of the Word of God. It declares the psalmist's absolute faith resolute faith in God. This psalm may be a, a reference to another person whom the psalmist is blessing. It may, it may be something addressed to an individual, or it can also be seen as a, a David himself, putting himself in the second person and blessing himself or proclaiming blessing on his life, but he doesn't want to sound too selfish or, or too self-centered. So he's, he's sort of saying, you know, may the Lord bless you. Because later on you will see that he personalizes the, the psalm it's for himself. He takes it for himself. So if you examine this psalm, if you analyze it sort of in a literary way, you'll see that there are three subjects in, in the psalm. There's a you, like may the Lord bless you or answer your prayers. There's a you, there's a we it says, we will revel in the Lord. We will remember the name of the Lord. And there's an I as well. As David says, you know, the, the, it refers to God's anointed. And another, uh, there's another moment where he uses the, the I. 
So there's three persons here. There's three subjects kind of interchangeably in, in reference to each other. And apparently, each one of these subjects refers to one and the same person. It's David. And this, this kind of uh, structure makes the psalm more complex. It, it's as in Psalm 23 also, where you, we, we examined it last Sunday, and we saw that uh, you know, the, the subject appears as a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. He takes me to places of still waters and so on and so forth. He's, he's conceiving himself as a, shep, as a sheep under the care, the loving care of a shepherd. But he also sees himself as a moral person as well, an individual. He says, he, he leads me in paths of righteousness. For example, you don't lead a sheep through paths of righteousness. You lead a human being, a responsible, morally responsible human being through paths of righteousness. So he's seeing himself not just as a sheep, but also as uh, an individual, a moral entity. And he, wave, he, he interweaves the two images throughout the psalm. And we also know about this psalm that the writer is specifically King David because the psalm says that right at the beginning in the heading, a psalm of David. And uh, we can also see that because uh, David says about the Lord's anointed God giving victory to the Lord's anointed. And so it's evident that he's speaking about himself, for he is God's anointed king. He has been anointed king by the Holy Spirit. So that, it's important to, to, to see that part, you know, David uh, uh, speaking for himself and, you know, expressing the, the, this, this radical faith in the Lord. Another thing that I want to point out is that I don't think that this psalm is written for a particular occasion, for a specific occasion when the nation might have been preparing for war. And, and this psalm is seen as a constituting a prayer for victory over an enemy army because there are references to um, victory. And uh, in, in the, in the uh, King James Version, it, it speaks uh, about... Um, in the, may the Lord hear you in the time of conflict. So I, I, I saw a lot of chatter in, in uh, examinations of this psalm, speaking about, you know, being a national psalm, being written specifically when David was going out for a particular battle and so on. I, I don't believe that that's really the case. If you look just at the, at the context itself, um, I believe that a more general interpretation of the psalm applies here. I think this psalm is written in the context of what I would call existential conflict, a, a, conf a context of trial and testing of an individual or a community. Um, and that is the, the interpretation, such as the time that we are living in now, time of crisis, time of conflict, time of stress. The, and, and this psalm as a whole is a prayer of blessing on behalf of uh, this uh, particular individual that we are talking about. I'll begin with David. It, it, it is a psalm of a blessing, a petition that God will, would fulfill a series of specific requests uttered on behalf of someone very special for the writer. The, this writer is uttering words of blessing on the life of that individual. And I believe, as I've said earlier, that in this case, the, benef the beneficiary of this beautiful prayer of blessing is King David, King David himself. He is, he is uh, expressing, and if you read the psalm in its, all, in its full flow, you will see that uh, much of it applies to David himself. 
Because at times he, he sort of betrays the fact that he is uttering that prayer for himself. But you know, it seems also at the same time that David is offering this psalm on behalf of anyone who reads it. That there's a general dimension to this psalm. It is applicable to everyone who reads it. That includes you and me, the church of Jesus Christ, the people of Israel. So when David says you and we in the first few verses, when he utters uh, specific blessings, he is saying it both for himself as well as for anyone who has the faith to believe that they can appropriate themselves of this blessing. So um, he says, uh, but we rise up and stand firm. When he says, may God send you help, may God send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion, he's saying that for ourselves. The Word of God is speaking through the centuries, through cultures, reverberating in the virtual space of uh, time and the cosmos, and that Word is spreading itself throughout the generations, waiting for someone who has the right antenna to pick up that blessing and make it their own. Um, anyone who has the faith to believe that this psalm is for them, they can appropriate. You can do that this morning for yourself. It's the Word of God blessing you. It is, it is a specific blessing that David is claiming for himself as well as for every believer who has read this psalm from a posture of faith throughout the centuries. And, you know, there are reasons why I believe David chooses this kind of complex structure, but we don't really have time to get into that for our purposes. But ex explore that psalm just from the, from the basics of its structure itself. It's just its biology, if you will. It's fascinating. Um, this we, I, you, and, and this collective we, and this collective I, the church, the nation, on and on. There's very many, many different levels of interpretation here. But one thing I can say that also that this is a very God-centered psalm. The person of God really is the ultimate subject, the ultimate foundation, the ultimate source, and the ultimate object of these words of faith and blessing. God is everywhere in this text. If you examine it carefully, you will find that in each verse, there, there is a, either a direct or an indirect reference to God. May the Lord answer you. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May He send you help. May He remember all your sacrifices. May He give you the desire of your heart. Of, of your, of your heart. And then in verse... Uh, Six, now this I know, the Lord gives victory. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary. On and on and on. Uh, and, and the last verse, you know, is also, uh, it focuses on God. Lord, give victory to the king. Lord, answer us when we call. You see this, this obsessive remaining focused on the person of God. And this is, this is, this is what uh, generates the energy of this psalm. This is what inspires the words of hope and confidence and blessing that emerge from David's uh, pen. David emphasizes it throughout this entire psalm his absolute, complete, desperate dependence on God and nothing else. And that's important for us to, to understand. This morning, 
I want to encourage you and me to cast ourselves into the arms of this faithful, protective God that we have on our side. I encourage us to be aggressively dependent on Him and Him alone. I'm telling you, the more you read the news and the more you read the analyses of this situation that we are facing and what lies ahead for these nations as they are forced to open up their doors and to seek a return to normal life with an enemy out there that is still yet to be fully defined and with a situation that nobody can really predict what it's going to look like. And those uh, uncertainties touch us and our families in a very personal way, what can you do? You have two choices. Either you despair, you, you become really concerned and even panicky, or you simply cast yourself into the arms of the Lord. If you haven't done that already, and I hope you have, I hope that you, yeah, I, I remember the words of uh, Esther when she's going into the chamber of the king and she's facing, you know, a possible death because she doesn't have permission to enter into the chamber of the king. She's going to break in there. And, uh, you know, the, the sentence was that the person who entered the king's chamber without being ushered in previously would die uh, because of their irreverence. But Esther says, you know, I mean, she says to her maidens, pray for me and fast and tell all the people of Israel to fast because they're going to be exterminated. And I'm not speaking about extermination, by the way. Don't, don't get me wrong. This is not what we're facing. But anyway, she says, and, t and if I perish, I perish. And you know, that is the bottom line of every believer. That's the last card that we play um, when we have to. When we have nothing else to go to, we say, if I perish, I perish. Why? Because we have this God ready to take us into his arms. And, you know, that's why we are ultimately invincible. This virus has no power. Because I hope you and I have committed our lives resolutely into the hands of God. That we are so dependent on Him that we don't have time to get um, panicky or to become fearful. And David just wants to gorge on God's person, name, power, faithfulness, love protection, presence, image. He just wants to dwell on that image and examine it from different perspectives. And I want to encourage you because this is what we have right now. I mean, we have to face something out there. We can't remain holed up in our houses for the rest of our lives. We can't close the church of Jesus Christ down for too much longer. We have to be aggressively dependent on the Lord and Him alone. So you can see that this psalm is not a general reference to just, you know, depending on God because that's what we do. No, this is a David's uh, declaration of militant, aggressive, violent dependency on his powerful God. It is an aggressive declaration of reliance on the Lord's power, presence, faithfulness, and love. This, this declaration of uh, trust in the Lord is given in the context of controversy in opposition to those who don't depend on the Lord, but rather depend on other resources and instruments besides God. So that's why in the end, you know, I really I believe that the culmination of this psalm is, is in those verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. 
there's a radical controversy here. It is, uh, I'm looking for a word when you say something in, in, in conflict with something else. You know, it, but it is, it is said, in a, not in a neutral way, it is said against the other, re, the other um, alternative, which is dependency on self and on human resources. And this is what moves me about this sound uh, and why it caught my attention recently. I've been mulling over some trust in chariots and in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. I mean, the, you, you, one should write that somewhere, you know, that you can see it every day of your life. You don't trust in yourself, you don't trust in your skill, your cunning, your intelligence, your money, your reputation, your courage. You just trust in the Lord your God. This is what moves me. This is the center of the psalm. Yes, it is a psalm written in the light of existential conflict and struggle, but it chooses to declare a militant, resolute dependency on God alone for deliverance. This is why, Psalm, again, he says, may the Lord answer you when you're in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May the Lord, may the name of the God, and this idea, the name of the God of Jacob, a person's entire personality is incorporated in the Bible in their name. Their name encapsulates who they are, their identity. And this is the name of, the, David wants to find a memorable way of saying, may the powerful personality of God, cover and protect you. And this is what we need to do these days. We need to pray. For when we pray for ourselves and our loved ones, we, we pray that God will hear our prayer. And when we are in the pit of despair, He will answer us positively. Make sure you spray your house with spiritual Lysol, with prayer. May, make sure you declare over and over again God's covering over your life, over your home. Walk through every space in your home. Bless your kitchen. You probably cook better. Bless your bedroom. Bless your living room. Bless every space of your house. And bless your children and your husband or your wife. Bless them in the name of God, the God of Jacob. We need to pray these days because this is what's going to keep us strong and solid. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 40, and this is precisely what it says at the beginning. It's, it's a beautiful psalm. I've learned it by memory. I waited patiently for the Lord. How did he wait? He, he, he cried out. He said, he turned to me and heard my cry. I love that. I waited patiently. Pacientemente esperé a Jehová. It says in Spanish. I waited patience, patiently on the Lord. And what did God do? He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, and he gave me a firm place to stand. Praise the Lord. We need to pray and to cry out more to the Lord in order to agonize less. Pray more, agonize less. Pray more, complain less. Pray more, get less depressed. When we find ourselves in times of great distress, this is what we have to ask of the Lord. We have to wait patiently because sometimes these things take longer than we want. But we pray that He might hear our cry and answer us and take us out of our predicament. You know, this is a time for patience. This is a time for endurance. This is not a time for people who run 30 yards and, you know, run out of steam. This is a time for marathoners, 26 miles. 
You got to pace yourself and you got to walk and run that race very patiently and very determinedly, and as I said earlier, with great discipline. In, in times of danger and threat, such as the ones we are living in, we have to actively place our hope on God protecting us, sending us help from His sanctuary, and granting us support from heaven, as verses 1 and 2 say. And this is my prayer for each one of us this day, that God may send us help from His sanctuary and grant us support from Zion. And that's exactly what's going to happen, people of God. Do not doubt it for a moment. God is, he's every, he has everything prepared. The whole party, he's got it planned down to a T. And it, it, it'll, it'll come to pass. Just trust in him. And then David says uh, later on, in, uh, further in the psalm, may he remember all your sacrifices, verse 7, excuse me, verse 3. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt Offerings. May he remember all your may, may he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. And by this, David means, in the way I would paraphrase it, may you live such a life. May you be such a person. May the quality of your life be such that God will be pleased when you praise Him and receive your praise to receive your worship when you seek His face. For if God accepts your sacrifice, that means that He approves of you. It means you have found favor in His eyes. Remember that God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice because Cain's personality and spirituality was not pleasing to God. It wasn't the nature of the sacrifice. It was the, the nature of the giver of the sacrifice. So David is saying, hey, may you, may you be of such a quality of person May your life be such that when you bring your sacrifice to the Lord, when you praise Him, God will say, yes, I receive it. Thank you. And I am pleased with your words. May, may God receive your sacrifice. David speaks of God remembering all our offerings. What a beautiful expression. You know, good works are not necessary for salvation. And in offerings, I say, you know, all your efforts on behalf of Him, everything that you bring, may God remember it. Why remember? Because he's saying in moments of need, may God, when you petition him, may God go back to the things that you have done on his behalf. You remember the centurion that the, the, the Jews come to Jesus and say, you know, he gave us, he, he built for us a synagogue. Just came to my mind right now. You know, there, there are times when, when your works come before the Lord you're, you're, and, you know, God remembers them. And he decides to bless you in all kinds of ways. And there's no better time for us to have, you know, some good works behind us than when we come before the Lord to ask for a favor. You know, good works are not, I've said good works are not necessary for salvation, for salvation. But once we are saved, it is important to give to the Lord, to work on behalf of his kingdom, to do works of righteousness, to be heroic on behalf of God's church. So that when we come before the Lord, we will be more confident and God will probably be more inclined to hear our prayers. I, I think I'm in solid theological ground in saying that. I, at the very least, I know that when we come before the Lord and we have a certain level of integrity behind us, of works and of loyalty to the, the Lord, we're more inclined to be, you know, bold and confident. We have seen how when he was in this deathbed, King Hezekiah desperately prayed to the Lord and God heard his prayer. And what did Hezekiah say? He says that he, he turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord saying, remember, 
Remember, remember? Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. You know, that's, that's the Word of God. And you might say, well, that's the Old Testament. In the New Testament, I could bring other passages to mind. When, once you are saved, you better work hard on behalf of God's kingdom. It's good to be able to approach the throne of God knowing that in the past, we have worked hard on behalf of his kingdom. Now, David goes on in this psalm, and then he asks both for himself and, and for us this, this beautiful prayer. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. Wow. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all, read all your plans succeed. May he grant all your requests. That's a radical statement there. And, and again, I believe that that's also in the New Testament. It's everywhere. This is not substandard theology of the Old Testament. Rebuke that dichotomy. It's a false dichotomy. It's the Word of God, the heart of God speaking for all eternity. Uh, asking and, and saying, you can, have all, you can have the desires of your heart. Let me, let me now modify and qualify that a bit theologically and biblically speaking go to psalms 37 verse 4 and you will find there it says take delight in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart notice that take delight in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart when the bible speaks of god giving us the desires of our heart it doesn't mean that god will give us anything that we want even those things that are against his will, for example, or that are harmful to us. Rather, what the Bible is assuming is that, that we first take delight in the Lord. Petitions that, that come out of a consecrated heart, what I call an enlightened heart, a heart that is sanctified, a heart that delights in doing the will, the will of God, a heart that has been formatted by the principles and the words of Scripture and those prayers and those desires will inevitably be granted. Why? Because that heart will always be praying according to the heart of God. And God will always delight in answering those types of prayer. And you know, that enlightened heart, even sometimes when we are rationally asking for certain things, the spiritual heart will be possibly asking for things that we rationally would want, but we know that it's not for our best. And God will hear the groanings of the Spirit in us. It's a very complex thing. It occurs to me that sometimes we may be praying for things, and that may be our reason, our mouth, our carnal dimension, but there's a groaning of the Spirit which God is attuned to because we have said, Lord, let your will be done and not mine. So God sometimes answers our prayers even more incredibly generously than we are even able to contemplate or conceive because he, he knows that that's what we want. We want his will to be done, not ours. This is why, above everything else, we must always take care of our heart and make sure that our heart has been shaped and formatted by God's word and the principles of God's kingdom. And heart is simply a, 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 a quaint way of saying personality, will, intelligence, soul. Today we would speak in different psychology, we would speak in different terms, but it is that motor force of the, of the human being from which everything emanates. And that operating system 
it has to be formatted according to the principles of the scriptures. That's why Proverbs 4.23 says, above all else, guard your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. For everything you do flows from it. See? That's why you got you to gotta keep the motor in shape. You got to keep it well oiled and well taken care of. Because everything that you think, do, desire is going to emanate from that central place of your being. And you have to keep it because that you want the Lord to be happy with, with your heart. And you want your prayers and everything that you do to, to uh, be in accord with that sanctified heart, that illuminated heart. And then in verse 6, uh, David goes on. Uh, this is the, the affirming part. I told you that there was a blessing part. There's an affirming part to this uh, psalm. He affirms that God is the source of every victory. Now this I know, colon, now this I know, hear me out. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him or her from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. In times of trouble, we can count on this truth that God gives victory to his anointed. Who is God's anointed? You, I. We are anointed by the Holy Spirit. When the believer finds herself in times of conflict and distress, God gives him the victory. I know that I know that I know that the victory is already ours in this whole situation. That's why I don't have time for self-pity or uh, commiseration or, um, you know, panic or woe is me. Uh, I know that God has an answer. It may take a little bit longer than I want. Whatever it is, whatever shape it takes, whatever shape it takes, be it pleasant or unpleasant, in, as far as I'm concerned, I know that it's fine. You know, he gives victory. There's a call here to trust in the Lord, to trust in his power, to trust in the victorious power of his right hand. Can you say that in a more grandiose way? I don't think so. The victorious power of his right hand. That power is more than sufficient to assure us victory in whatever situation we might find ourselves. And now we come to really to the, 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 the center, el meollo, as we say in Spanish, the very heart of this psalm, verses 7 and 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall. But we rise up and stand firm. Yeah, and Christopher, you can put it a little higher. I want to, I, I love, I just, we just want to listen to that, uh, the worship of God as well as we, we declare these. This is a, a, this is a psalm of praise to the Lord. This is, a, this is a poem from a man who knows God and who wants us to know him in that same way. This is what attracted me to this psalm initially. And I, I knew the verse and it came to my mind. I said, where is that? And I, I looked it up and it brought me to this beautiful place of still waters because I think this is this this is so relevant to the time that we are living in right now okay it, it is an illustration and it is a condensation of everything that the psalmist has been saying until now this is where everything comes home right here the first thing I want to say that there is a contrast here there is a moral spiritual contrast between two kinds of 
collectives or individuals, if you will. Number one, those who don't take the Lord into account and who only trust in their own resources, their skills, and their intelligence. That's a class of human being. It's a class of culture. It's a class of nation. They don't take the Lord into account. They only trust in their own power, their own resources. When they find themselves in times of stress and difficulty, they only think in what? Material terms. They will seek scientific solutions. They will seek financial solutions. They will press the levers of matter and finances and science. They will consult the experts and put their trust in them. They will tinker obsessively with the situation and experiment with all kinds of possible human, scientific, rational solutions. But they will never consult the Lord publicly or privately even. They will never ask for the Lord's help. They will never humble themselves and seek God's counsel. They will never admit or confess that they are out of their depth or that they require the hand of God to intervene. They will revel foolishly in their own self-sufficiency, in their own human capacity to solve a major problem. I'm reminded of uh, uh, Mayor uh, Governor Cuomo's statement. And I say that in respect for his position, but not for his moral stance. There's an article that I was reading in National Review, and I also read the article where his famous statement, his infamous statement, you know, when, when uh, it became evident that the situation in New York was changing and that the curve was going down a bit and the number of deaths were uh, decreasing and, um, you know, the number of hospital admissions was decreasing, he, he made a statement, you know, and this is what he says. That was around the middle of April. Remember well, because it struck me like a, like a hammer in my spirit. Uh, you know, he, 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 Governor Cuomo decided, he insisted that God was not the one who had made things better. But that man's hard work, actually, was the source. This is his exact words. You can look them up. The number is down because we brought the number down. That's the statement that he made. And he emphasized further, God did not do that. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. This is why I think it was, it, it is a, it is a, forgive me again with great respect, I say it is a demonic spirit animating those words in its insistence, in its emphasis. He could have just made a passing statement, but no, he decided to stay there and just make it crystal clear. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. A lot of read human pain and suffering did that. That's how it works. It's math. <laughs> now, you don't get more rationalistic than that. It's math. And if you don't continue to do that, you're going to see that number go back up. And that will be a tragedy if that number goes back up. That's the, that's the, the words of a man who trusts in his chariots and his horses. That is the, the, the reason why this culture and this world is mired in the situation that it is mired. And it, this will continue. I give you my word that this is not the last crisis that this generation will see. As long as it continues in its crazy, foolish self-sufficiency. I, I could understand the governor's point about people having to do their part and take care of themselves and prevent the spread of the virus, disease. It's a, it's a point well taken. I understand that we need to do our part. But this man, seems to take, this man seems to take particular delight in pointing out that God has nothing to do with the improvement. 
in New York's dire situation. It's all about man. It's all about what we do or do not do. God should be kept out of the entire affair. Let, let the, those evangelicals keep their, their um, spirituality inside the four walls of the church. And even there, they don't want us right now. We, the grown-ups, we will take care of this thing. Keep God out of it. It doesn't occur to him that it's not either or, but both and. And that God should be given the glory and taken into consideration, if nothing else, out of sheer respect for the Creator. Make it a formula. Just say it for the sake of saying it. But don't suppress it actively. A major leader like Governor Cuomo cannot imagine what terrible spiritual damage he does to his state by uttering such disrespectful words. His ungodly words, I believe, are like a curse on New York State. It disinvites God from the situation, and it leaves the crisis in the hands of puny, confused, clueless men and women. It says, we can handle this by ourselves, and we don't need God's help in any way, thank you. It's a curse. It is an implicit spiritual curse on a city. And I'm not surprised that, you know, New York somehow seems to be the, the, the it attracts every bad smell in the world. Again, I, I, I know I could get flack from saying something like that. It's a wonderful city. I lived there as a boy. I loved that city. But um, there's a lot of a spiritual illness in it as well. I think this is the most foolish thing a political leader can do in such a serious situation as the one that we are confronting. You know, no, no wonder New Yorkers are so depressed, confused, and hopeless right now. Uh, there's a recent article in the New York Times. It just it came uh, uh, last week. <clears throat> Uh, on the mood of New Yorkers these days. And, and this is just, just a little excerpt from the, from the article. It says, the most recent weekly survey of 1,000 New York State residents, about how, half of them from the city by the uh, city, of, uh, city University of New York, CUNY, Graduate School of Public Health and, and Health Policy, asked how socially connected people have felt. And just over two in five said, not at all. That was about double the number that answered that way four weeks earlier. 40% of the latest polls respondents said they had felt anxious more than half of the time in the past two weeks. 32% said they had felt depressed, quoting, there's this grieving of life as we once knew it that wasn't there before as we tried to come to terms with the new reality, said so-and-so, a psychologist in Manhattan. I'm seeing it much more in my practice. People are really starting to, uh, to get more depressed. And people who are prone to depression, it, it's now kicking in. New York City, always something different. This is the, the uh, reporter. New York City, always something different for everyone who calls it home, remains out of reach in a way that has stopped feeling temporary. City and state leaders pressed daily for a timeline toward normalcy or a passing description of what that might look like, answer with shrugs and the talks of tests and the curves. That's what their normalcy looks like in the future. The city might as well be a snow globe on a high shelf. It's many riches, art collections, jazz clubs, athletes, and chefs. No churches here. It's high C tenors and Brooklyn DJs now unavailable. Yes, that's exactly what happens when you put your joy and your peace and your repose on all of these things, and you don't have a strong moral foundation in the bottom, 
when you come into times of crisis and that time lasts, you're going to crack sooner or later. When a culture and its leaders put their hope in chariots and horses, this is what happens. They show themselves to be woefully unprepared for a crisis. They crumble, as the psalmist says. They are brought to their knees and fall. They quickly become demoralized and fall prey to scenarios of doom. They grope in the darkness and stumble. My brother and sister, if you, you, are, you belong to the kingdom. You don't react that way. I don't want to just heap uh, uh, guilt on you. No, because you have the, op the option. As Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. Let, let that rejoicing be a moral choice on your part. Let your prayer and worship be a moral choice. Let it come out of those depths of discipline and of faith that you have in you. Choose to worship God, praise Him, thank Him, express hope instead of the, op the opposite. It takes the same amount of energy to do one or the other. You know, it, it's, it's a pathetic sight to see sophisticated governments in Europe and America caught by surprise and paralyzed with fear as they are, throwing, you know, trillions of dollars at the economic consequences of this virus. I, I see just gobs of money. I see, you know, the, the president and the senators and the, the representatives are just taking boxes of money and just kind of throwing them out into, into the cities, just throwing it out loans and, and, you know, buyouts and all kinds of crazy stuff, just throwing it out in the, into the air, trying to spook away the virus and, and, and to dispel the economic consequences of uh, their actions and of this, this uh, situation. I see them desperately ordering tens of thousands of $40,000 respirators. And again, money is to be made in this crisis. I don't think uh, 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 that machine is worth twice what a regular car costs, a modest car. But everybody's making money out of this. And this is why money is being burned in the eyes of this oppressive, exploitive society that doesn't think about the poor, just thinks about itself and about the people who control everything. And they, they look with... Um, uh, you with scorn at the poor, even as they worship the poor and they talk about social justice. They don't care. Many of them do not with their refrigerators full of uh, gourmet ice cream and yet professing to care about the poor. You know, it's, it, God is just taking that money and burning it up. And forgive me if I don't have all the pity and all the mercy on or the oil corporations, you know, not having a place to store their oil and wanted to give it away. They have exploited us. I'm sorry. Many of them go to their nice Presbyterian churches, and I have nothing against the Presbyterians. On Sunday, well, they exploit heartlessly the poor and manipulate nations. And now I, it's maybe time for some payback. That money is being burnt up by the trillions. You know, we don't, no longer speak of billions. We speak of trillions as we were talking about $100 these days. It's crazy. And, you know, God is just uh, burning up these things. And, you know, these, these same $40,000 respirators that, that were the cause of so much alarm and so much controversy, now they're discovering that 90% of the patients who were intubated and used respirators died 
And now they're not so keen on using those respirators anymore. They're using more humble practices like putting patients on the side or, uh, you know, down on their face and so on in the beds because those humble um, procedures are, are proving to be more appropriate. You know, humility. I, I think of all the, the, the robes, the, the, the clinical you know, robes and the masks that were just thrown away. I mean, you know how much, you know, instead of thinking right from the very beginning, let's, let's purify these things. Now they're discovering ways of purifying. You know, America has been squandering so much money. The health system, $50 for an aspirin, $100 for, a, you know, a, a, a medical gown, $1,000 a day for, you know, somebody just coming, how are you doing? Ching, $1,000 in a bed. You know, and this, this, this is what the Lord is against. This is what the Lord is saying. You, you, you will crumble, you know. Uh, this society has been locked down at an incredible human cost. And now we realize that when we open up this society, which we have to do, we have the specter of that same virus waiting for us in a different way. And now we have to do what, you know, maybe we should have looked at more creatively. If we, have, if we would have dedicated those trillions of dollars to finding more creative human ways of, of uh, solving this situation, we probably might be in a better place. But no, God, as you remember, blinds men who don't give him the glory and leads them to do things that are not uh, worthy, that are not prudent. The blind leading the blind. God will continue. I'm drawing to a close here. But God will continue to push the nations of the world into a corner until they fall on their knees and acknowledge their impotence and their radical need of him until they realize that God is in his throne, that he needs to be consulted preemptively, not just when you're in a crisis, but every day leaders, political leaders in particular who lead their nations morally and spiritually, whether they like it or not, they need to say our dependence is on the Lord. In God we trust. <laughs> and it's so good that they put it in a dollar bill. You know, but we don't trust in God. We insult Him actually now because of what those bills represent spiritually. Uh, he will continue to push them into a corner until they fall on their knees. When you don't have Christ at the center, you are woefully unprepared for the day of distress. You know, but there are, there's another class here. There's another class of people. Those who trust in the name of the Lord their God. While the ungodly collapse under the weight of a crisis, those who trust in the Lord flourish. They become stronger. They can say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay because that's what we are. People, nations, collectivities, you, I, we are just jars of clay, breakable, eminently breakable, to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. That's, that's the, that is the true dichotomy, the puniness of human beings versus the great power of God. And we need to cultivate that sense of total weakness. And, but then, you know, Paul says, we are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. I'm perplexed when I wake up in the morning. 
but I'm not despairing. No. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. The weaker you are, the stronger you become in the Lord. It is during moments like these that we discover what kind of a foundation we have laid for ourselves. I'm reminded of the parable of Jesus about two men who constructed their houses on different foundations, one on sand and another on solid rock. What happened when the storm came? Only the house that was built on the rock stood. The other one was washed into the sea. I, I, I firmly believe that this, when this is all over, God's people as a whole and this church will be stronger than when this crisis started. And I'm already experiencing that and I'm seeing that. And I declare that in my trust is in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, in the Lord, not on me, on any leadership structure, any, you know, paradigms that we might depend on or whatever, any protocols that we carry out. No, it's on the Lord only, desperately. And he's the one who has control of everything here. But I believe that we will be stronger. We are already stronger, actually, than when we started. And that we will emerge purified and more confident than ever in this God in whom we have placed our trust. We must continue each day, as I said earlier, practicing our spiritual disciplines, clothing ourselves with God's armor, militantly declaring God's faithfulness and power, reminding ourselves that not a single thing happens in our lives unless God allows it. We must, like the Apostle Paul declare, none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live we live for the Lord. And if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. I will leave you with the words again of the psalmist. Let me now, in the light of what I have declared, read the psalm to you again. And if you want to close your eyes, if you want to stand in your house, wherever you are, just let, 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 this, uh, let the psalm penetrate the pores of your body. Let it wash over you. Let it like a, an endless symphony just uh, remain in your being for the rest of these days. And I say to you, people of God, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. This I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him or her from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Yes, some trust in chariots and, and some in horses, but we, you, I, we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. And I say, Lord, give us victory. Give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Amen.